Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. Over the weekend, uh, a jury found a former SNC-Lavalin executive vice president guilty on all charges uh, involving bribery uh, bribery and fraud and so on. Um, And this is in a separate case, which was uh, early. Earlier on, we remember the whole Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal and the thing with uh, the prime minister's office pressuring her to give SNC-Lavalin a deferred prosecution agreement. This is a separate situation from that. But how does one affect the other and this story moving forward? Let's bring in Tim Powers, vice chairman, Summa Strategies. He's advised them all in one form or another, and he is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, joining you from my home province of Newfoundland, where can you believe it was 15 degrees yesterday? That is absolutely beautiful. Not a lick of snow on the ground today, uh, so there you go. So SNC clearly had nothing to do with our weather. They didn't cooperate <laughs> or uh, bribe anybody. It just happened. It's just nature doing her thing. Exactly. All right, so your thoughts on this, uh, and we this is a, a very much a separate scenario from what the Prime Minister was involved in with the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, uh, but how does one affect the other? Does one affect the other? Well, it... it, it it, it impacts the public opinion on all of it again, right? And this was, uh, I think, one of the things that Jody Wilson-Raybould was was trying to say that yes, there are criminal charges and uh, that were happening, and uh, that has an impact on how you look at things. Of course, uh, SNC was looking for a deferred prosecution agreement, which didn't mean there wouldn't be penalties and the like. But I think it just makes what happened uh, earlier this year look worse. Uh, because now there are convictions, and it looks like it can be perceived uh, that you weren't just trying to do a favor for a you know large Quebec company, as the Liberals have tried to frame it, uh, but also a, a company that now has had an individual, another one, I believe, convicted of, of crimes that involve bribery. Doesn't look good. With that being said, um, uh, and, uh, uh, David Lametti, the Attorney General, was uh, on the news over the weekend saying, hey, look, I can't comment now either way on this uh, because of what is going on and what is before the courts, which I guess now makes sense. That being said, with uh, even chatter of such allegations uh, surrounding this company, can the Prime Minister uh, justly go and, and say, nah, let's give them a deferred prosecution agreement? I, I just seem, it seems so difficult, right? And the Prime Minister has been trying to uh, not sully his reputation. He's only really had one mistake in the two months since he's been uh, reelected, and that was in Buckingham Palace, as, mm. as we know. He, I think he wants to stay as far away from this as he can. Uh, you know, maybe it works for him if somebody like the Bloc Québécois, who now have 30-plus seats in Quebec, said, Prime Minister, you need to act on this. You'll remember during one of the debates, um, Mr. Blanchet, the leader of the Bloc, said, well, you need to stand up for this particular company. Trudeau would get cover if they did that, but I haven't heard the Bloc say anything about that recently. Um, because I also heard uh, someone say yesterday that because of this conviction, now SNC-Lavalin will be pressuring the government even more to get a deferred prosecution agreement because it appears where this is all going. 
Um, yeah, well, because there's still that is that Sorry, still is see. that still feasible? I mean, would they really start to do that? I mean, what kind of position does that put the PM in? That's a, that's a tough political one, right? I mean, they're a publicly traded company, so anytime uh, a market-based uh, company uh, shareholders see these sorts of things, they lose confidence. Remember how much value had been evaporated from that company when there was uh, when charges were laid originally. So why they want to go to a deferred prosecution agreement is to say that they have a, a neat and tidy solution to all this. There'll be no more charges. It, it's been wrapped up. Penalties have been levied, and they can go forward. The longer this hangs out, the more difficult it is for SNC. I, 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 I don't see politically how the government does that, um, uh, particularly given the election is, is now done. Again, unless somebody gives them cover, somebody from another political party who's prepared to support them, but they'd be crucified by the conservatives and the New Democrats if that were the case, if, uh, they, if they did the DPA. So why is the uh, attorney general acting the way he is by saying, well, now I'm not going to answer either way? Could he answer either way or would that interfere with what is going on? Yeah, I think it's the latter, that if he right. did, it would look like interference. So in other words, been... too late for all of that. Now he's just got to let it run its course. Yeah. And look, Lametti is uh, a smooth operator, and I don't mean that in a negative mm-hmm. sort of connotation around smooth. He's a former dean of McGill Law. He doesn't want to get caught out on this at all so not having an opinion uh, or having the opinion that he you know he can't comment is the safest and most predictable for him and for the government how would this be playing in quebec today uh and you brought up the block especially with them uh well i I think again it'll be interesting to hear what employees who uh are still in the company say about all of this i mean i'm sure it's getting lots of attention in quebec i heard it uh, on an ottawa radio station on the way to the airport last night um yeah it no doubt is is a focus on some discourse there again the future of the company has always been important to quebec media not everybody of course i wouldn't want to put them in the same uh same jurisdiction uh but i i think the discussion will be about all right well what does it mean to the dpa if there ever could be and what what does it mean to the company if shareholder value keeps getting wiped out uh, we know that this is certainly one of the uh, three jewels of Quebec, certainly one of the prides of Quebec. Is has di- What happened here? Too big to fail? Uh, old school practices uh, are getting called out in the modern world, right? You've had many reporters talk about and many people who've worked in jurisdictions where the regulations and the, and the rule of law is not as pronounced and in integral as ours is in Canada, that this was common commonplace, and it, it's caught up to them. Uh, you've caught, been caught up, and rightly so, in a world of transparency, and, and how you do business everywhere has to be consistent. And when it isn't, and you you know try to skirt the rules and play to the local conditions, you get yourself in trouble. And SNC, I'm sure, uh, wasn't alone over many, many years uh, in trying to play local rules, but recognizing that North American markets, North American standards are what now govern the way you need to behave. So that's the way, and and many people, maybe that would resonate with lots of uh, of people, that's the way the game is played in those kinds of countries. Does that fly nowadays? No, it doesn't, right? and there's so many different codes of conduct. Again, all good things that have come from these mistakes that have been made. Um, but that doesn't, you know, 
that doesn't help SNC in the immediate term, but perhaps this is just a course correction that has to, has to happen. And uh, they've been dealing with this for a while. I mean, there should have been some more appropriate judgment. I mean, lots of the stories, as you will recall, when uh, the material, some of the material four or five years ago began to break was about SNC dealing with the Gaddafis in Libya. I mean, uh, you, you, you didn't need market rules in North America to know that, that was probably dumb. Hmm, right? yeah. And it was, it was going to come and bite you in the backside at some point. So does this stay in the news? And, and what happens in 2020 with this other case? Uh, of course it stays in the news. Who knows what happens in 2020 with the other case, but it became so such a central part of our political debate. And, and, and again, as you said, you described it, I think, rightly, as one of the crown jewels of Quebec. Um, it's, it's not going anywhere till all these stories are gone and the future of SNC is, is known. You'll remember the argument SNC made, has been, was making, according to the documents we saw for DPA, was if this wasn't dealt with, we're going to fail. So I think people are, will be on the, all right, well, well what really is going to happen? They'll be watching to see what the course correction is and is SNC in jeopardy? And the, what was it, 9,000 employees, though we never saw the data, uh, are, are they all really going to be in a precarious position as it relates to their employment? Is this a case of the Bloc or Quebec supporting SNC at any, uh, at, in any case for any cause? No matter what I think the they scenario. have to be careful with that, right? Again, it, it assumes uh, that all Quebecers are okay with what SNC did and the conviction is fine with them just to keep the jobs. I think that's an insult to Quebecers and politicians are going to have to weigh that. I, they've got to find a way and they've tried to carve out this argument and say, look, it was just a few bad apples. Why should the rest of the company be penalized? And that's not an unfair argument, but it's more charges and more cases, it's a tougher one to, to tow. How is Jody Wilson-Raybould responding to this today? Or is, well, she busy, busy. is she busy looking for a new office? She's too busy. You got an office for her in Hamilton. I, I have, again, as I say, I'm in St. John's. I've not heard what she uh, has said or, or, or not said. And uh, that joke aside, it's unfortunate she's not helping herself with this um, this little dispute over, over the office. She's playing to some of the criticisms that were levied against her. However, I don't think that takes away from the stand that she took. But it doesn't help her brand today as that story was going on for two or three days. Uh, do you want to weigh in on that? What's happening? Why is that a story? Well, I, I mean, look, just so your listeners understand, and it's been a pretty common practice for as long as I can remember that uh, the, the when a government is elected, um, the, uh, the offices in the House of Commons, the bigger ones, because you do ministerial business in them, go to those who are ministers in the government. And you don't get to keep an office forever because uh, they're assigned based on how the election results transpire. And Ms. Wilson-Raybould, of course, ran as an independent. She won as an independent. And it works on a pecking order, fairly or unfairly. So the Liberals get the top pick of offices, then the Conservatives, then the New Democrats, then the or the Bloc, then the New Democrats, and then the Independents. That's just been the precedent for years. I, I get that the office was blessed by an elder, and that's that's an important thing, but I don't think that is uh, reason enough for the office not to be reassigned, because that's been a practice that seemingly has worked from government to government to government to government. And Ms. Wilson-Rabel, as I say, is not really helping her own brand with this and perhaps should recognize that. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, moving on, let's talk about the, uh, I, I can't let you go without uh, getting your thoughts update on the situation with the Conservatives, how that <laughs> has all played out with Andrew Shear exiting uh, stage left uh, b- because of his family and stuff. How has all this been digested over the weekend? Well, I mean, you and I have to declare, of course, that our children are being subsidized by our employers. So, you know, it's just <laughs> normal for this to, to, to happen. Joking, of course, in both our cases, but uh, it's not played out very well. I mean, Mr. Shears' his own worst enemy in so many cases, the fighting over... Boy, is that ever accurate at this point? My goodness. Well, I, you know, I feel a lot for Dustin Van Booth, the party executive director. I've known him for years. He's a friend of mine. Uh, I, I don't know what actually transpired there. I've talked to people in the conservative fund, so I know what their perspective was. But I feel for Dustin, because if the leader comes to you and says, I want you to pay for this, what are you going to say? It's yeah. like your boss coming in and saying, Scott, mm. you know, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and it's kind of in line with what we're doing. You're more likely than not to say yes, yeah. right? I mean, why? It's the judgment again of Andrew Shear putting somebody in that particular position. Yes, Dustin should have said no, perhaps, but anyway, he didn't. But why would Andrew Shear ask in the first place? Doesn't he know anything about who his party is made up with and how that would be a, a foul odor? And the other thing is, why is Andrew Shear staying around? And again, this is not to jump on his grave and be mean to him, but I don't think the conservatives can turn over a new leaf uh, on an immediate basis, if Mr. Shear is still the face of the party until whenever a leadership election is called, and then he's still living in public housing. I mean, just bad, bad, bad optics for them. Uh, we would be better for them to turn the page on all this, bringing in an interim leader until uh, a new uh, a new one is selected. Well, it worked pretty well last time, didn't it? Because the last interim leader is the one they all want to run for permanent leader. So exactly. why not? I mean, that's not unusual, and it tends to happen. Mike Lignatiev didn't stay around. Thomas Mulcair, uh, well, he'd become leader of the third party. I mean, uh, you know, people who, Mr. Dion didn't stay around. They all left. Interim leaders came in. I don't know why Mr. Shear feels he, he needs to stay. And shame on the Conservative caucus for letting him stay. They could have said, no, Andrew, you need to go. And they, they say they're going to have steady hands. Well, Mr. Shear has uh, demonstrated his hands are perhaps the shakiest in Canadian politics right now. Hmm. It, you know, it, it just seems odd that even when, uh, and we talked about this before, uh, obviously both ends of the party uh, attacking him, whether it was the progressive, the progressives or the old uh, social conservatives, uh, it didn't seem like he had a lot of friends left in the party, yet when he left, instead of just saying, you know, clearly there's some divisiveness in the party and da 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 and gracefully just stepped down. But instead, he brought the thing up about the family, which, you know, I guess was being brought up uh, in mm-hmm. regard to in regard to who was financing their education and such. But, you know, uh, I thought if he had just come clean, but then again, if he had done that all through the campaign, he may not be in the predicament he's in now. Absolutely right. And look, he still has a few days, I think probably to the beginning, early in the new year, to say, look, I've listened. I recognize that I've made mistakes. Uh, I'm going to step down entirely for the good of the party and welcome an interim leader. And then people can say, well, you know what? He didn't do too badly in the end. He was only, conservatives will tell you, he was only a temporary caretaker and the current controversies aside, his election results as a temporary caretaker are pretty good, and he can reframe his story if he wants to, but he seems to be missing that. Uh, what role did Stephen Harper have in any of this? <laughs> well, according to numerous press reports, he was the leader of the uh, 
the gang in the Conservative Fund, because he's a member of the Conservative Fund. I, I think the reply, I, I don't know this to be certain. As I say, I know members of the Conservative Fund. They've been very tight-lipped about this, uh, about who said what in, in that meeting of Friday. Uh, but I believe when I read that Prime Minister Harper, former Prime Minister Harper, was very angry. He, uh, many things you can criticize Stephen Harper for, but he was always pretty determined not to um, uh, use uh, parties' resources for things like Andrew Scheer did and would automatically get the symbolic problem around all of that. And of course, there was a lot of chatter yesterday on social media, as you probably saw, from Harper Acolyte saying, well, he never took money from uh, the Conservative Party for any sort of top-ups, and his kids went to public school. Hmm. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, 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 in regard to an interim leader, uh, mm-hmm. they've already announced that he will, uh, uh, that uh, Andrew Shear will stay on as interim leader. Do you think that will change between now and the actual? I think it has the potential to. I look. There's a you know. Are, are there more things that are going to come out and that make Andrew Shear the continued focus of problems in the Conservative Party? And if Andrew Scheer continues to be the story for the wrong reasons, it's hard to say how even his caucus, who said he could stay, uh, can support that. Um, and I, I don't. I, I think there's still enough anger out there with Mr. Scheer that some of that may continue to happen and make it untenable for him or the caucus to support him stay. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies, and talking to us from The Rock today. Uh, Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Take care, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were talking last week uh, with Kevin Donovan, chief investigative reporter uh, with the Toronto Star, in regard to uh, the Honey and Barry Sherman murders. And he had uh, released some more information that he had found in regard to uh, the posing of, of the, these art statues that were there and, uh, and the position that they were in. Oddly enough... Uh, now, uh, Toronto police have held a press conference earlier this morning in regard to this case, uh, but it didn't seem that a lot was really, uh, a lot of new information came forward. So uh, we've asked Kevin Donovan, chief investigative reporter for the Toronto Star, to come back. The book is The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, and Kevin is with us now. Kevin, thanks again for joining us. Much appreciated. Uh, delighted to be on. Thanks for the interest. So why this, uh, you know, when we first heard of this press conference this morning, I thought, my goodness, there's something going on here. And it didn't seem to be a lot of great information, certainly nothing new from the investigative standpoint. Uh, what, do you, what was the objective of this press conference? Well, if you remember back about a year ago, the uh, private detective team and their the lawyer, Brian Greenspan, who at the time was representing uh, the trustees uh, of uh, the Sherman estate, basically the four the four children of, of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, he had a press conference uh, and he lined up all of his private investigators and they pretty much savaged the work of the Toronto Police Homicide Squad, said that the police had uh, had failed to do a proper job, had missed fingerprints, things like that. Uh, and then they announced a reward. But like other rewards, they wanted the information to come to to them, to the Sherman's private uh, team. And that caused a real rift between the Sherman family uh, and uh, and the police. And I I think what we saw today was an indication that that rift has been repaired. Uh, The the people from uh, the the Sherman side, uh, and I don't 
know if it's all of them, but but the ones with the loudest voices have uh, have decided that it, it, enough with the private investigation uh, team and uh, let's put our support behind the police. And then we see the police then say for the first time uh, in the two years of the investigation, public send us your tips, even if you've already sent it to the private team, send it to us so we can check them out. That to me seemed uh, odd as well. So what created this kumbaya moment? As you mentioned, we all remember how this was uh, first thought to be a murder-suicide and then later a double murder, and there has been lots of questioning and how this has been investigated. And obviously this family um, affluent enough to be able to afford their own investigative team, which I understand is, is quite good. So have they arrived at a conclusion that there's nothing more they can do without police's help? Well, I think that the private uh, team, I've always believed the private team, the best work they did was to arrange the uh, the autopsies, the second set of autopsies that were done by a very experienced pathologist. And that's what changed the police mind and, and made them understand that it was a double murder. And and since that time, uh, I, I've been, my uh, interviews have occasionally bumped into people who have been interviewed by the private team, but it's been a year since I've heard anything from them. And I, 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 in my opinion, uh, just based on all the many people that I've talked to, uh, nothing much has been going on. Uh, there's nothing more for them to do. So it actually probably made good fiscal res- uh, sense to just end that private investigation. Uh, but I also think that this, uh, you, you can't really have a two-tier uh, yeah. group of investigators. You, you really, at some point in a criminal case, you have to have just the police. That's the way our, our courts are set up. And and one of the problems is that any information that would come in to the private team and then go to the police, there'd be an issue, I think, of whether or not it is legally admissible uh, in, in a trial. Mm. So so that I think now we've moved on. So the, the private investigation is over. And now the question is, what are the police doing? Do you think that's why the detective today said at the press conference that even if you've submitted stuff, information to uh, the private investigation team, we would like you to submit it to us and start over. Would that is that all legalities as far as making this all stand up in court? I, I think it is, and I don't expect that there's going to be uh, a huge number of uh, uh, tips that are going to... Uh, I don't think any new information right. is going to come uh, of this. I, in my opinion, the, and I keep saying in my opinion, but it really is based on my investigation as mm-hmm. a star, that I, I think the police are... are are getting to the point where they're they're trying to prepare a case against uh, a, a person or persons, and they want to be able to say that they did everything, that they did not have a tunnel vision, right. that they were uh, interested in all information. And I, I I think that now we're down to a number of months as opposed to years, and I think they want to see what comes in over the next little while, and then uh, mm. and then they're going to make some sort of a move. Uh, the inspector today mentioned cold cases, but he said, I don't believe that this is going to be a cold case. Right. Um, and again, obviously, we're just assuming at this point. Um, but in your feeling with the work that you've done investigating all of this, uh, that they're closer to something as opposed to the trail has gone cold? Well, yeah. And I have to tell you that when I, so there's a process that I've been undergoing as a reporter of the Star where I've been uh, trying to get access to some of the police documents that are filed in support of search warrants. 
And in doing so, every six months, I get to cross-examine in court one of the detectives on the case. It's a detective named Dennis Yim, Mm -hmm. and he was there at the press conference today. And so last April, he uh, answered uh, some questions, and he said that we have a theory of the case, uh, but he wouldn't say if we have a suspect. Then in October of this year, I learned from him that that uh, the police uh, can have the same theory of the case, that they have just uh, obtained a whole bunch of electronic information, a voluminous amount of data, is how he put it, and they've analyzed that, and now they're looking at next steps. That's in October. He also said something that was interesting, and I have no explanation for it at this time, but he said that the estate of Barry and Honey Sherman is big is a big part or is embedded in his in his investigation. Hmm. So this relates somehow to money, somehow to the estate. Now we, although I have some sources that have told me what's what's in in Barry's will, I don't know for a fact, and that's why we're trying to get our hands on some of those documents. Uh, you sort of covered this, uh, Kevin, in, in uh, when you just spoke. But our uh, my next question was: Would would this lead you to believe that both of these investigative teams are arriving at the same conclusion? That even though they started separately, they're now on the same page. They've now arrived uh, on, on the same path. No, and I don't think that the private team uh, had any. Uh, uh, conclusion at all. I, I, I've never heard anything like that. That they, uh, I've only heard that they were interviewing people and passing on uh, information to the police. I, I don't think they had any conclusion. Hmm. Uh, so, I, so I, they I were just sort of gathering information for the police investigation. Yeah, and, and when all the media heard from the private team a year ago, which was a year into the investigation, they never even mentioned that, that they had a, their own suspect at all. I, I will say that in my, some of my, I won't mention names, but in some of my questions to, to the, the private team, I have raised uh, a certain pieces of information, and then I have received letters back from, from Mr. Greenspan's lawyer for the private team, saying, and lawyer for the Shermans at the time, saying that, uh, you know, your sources, we believe, are our suspects. But he wouldn't say, well, I'm not, of course, I'm not going to reveal who my sources are. It was just kind of this odd uh, comment that he made right. that, that sources who would be providing me with information would be his suspects. So, no, we, I, I don't know that they have any suspects at all. Uh, I, I believe the police do, but they're just not revealing it. Revealing them. Sorry. Could it be that even though this didn't start, this investigation didn't start on very solid ground, that once a, a working theory and, and charges are laid, and this all ends up into co- uh, in court, that the fact that there were two separate investigations could complicate this and, and lead it to and lead the jury to coming up with a conclusion that uh, you know, had there just been one simplified investigation, we wouldn't have got there. I think you've uh, hit the nail on the head. I think it is going to be a problem, and I I suspect that uh, one of the main reasons why the private investigation is over is the police uh, would like to put some distance between the private investigation and their own probe. And so I think now we're going to see a couple of months where police are, are working away and they say they're checking all of the information, including the tips, uh, the 300-some tips that they got from the private investigators. But, yeah, I do think that 
that if somebody or some people were one day charged, uh, their very sharp defense lawyer would uh, would point to this uh, dueling investigation and yeah. uh, and, and probably uh, uh, make a lot of um, uh, make a lot of that uh, to kind of muddy the waters, uh, which is you know what in our uh, system uh, they're allowed to do. And you know, considering uh, what little information we have at this point, that already is a pretty strong defense for whoever. Uh, is eventually charged on in all of this. Now, what about the family's position on this? They are now completely behind uh, the police investigation, I guess. Yes, and uh, you know the, the the Sherman family is a is a, a general term that was that was used today. Uh, I mean, there are four children. Uh, they don't speak uh, publicly, uh, so we don't know what uh, if they're all working together or not. There's uh, you know both Barry and Honey each had a had a much beloved sister. Uh, then there's uh, you know uh, uh, brothers-in-law, and then there's uh, you know grandchildren, and so it, it's uh, it, we have no information today as who the sh- who the Sherman family is that they say are being so cooperative. Uh, uh, so uh, so, th- so it you know there's so many. I brought out a lot of information in this case. But there are also so many other questions that remain, uh, for the moment, shielded by secrecy. So when, you know, even the way this is, is, is being presented to us now, that this is a joint statement from both the family and the police uh, services, uh, but as you're saying, we just don't know who that family is, and, and that could be split within the family itself. That's right. And so, so there's, you know, there's, my understanding is that the original retainer of Brian Greenspan and the private detectives came not from the family, but in fact from the trustees of the estate. And the trustees of the estate include uh, uh, Barry and Honey's son, uh, a son-in-law, uh, and two uh, close business associates. And and those people were the ones that were calling the shots on behalf of the family. Uh, so, you know, the it's an unusual case where where something like this you, that we're not hearing. Uh, publicly from the family. I mean, we've all uh, terrible crimes that happen, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately on a weekly basis uh, in in our, in our cities. And normally you do hear from the victims of the family, but this one, uh, there's just so much secrecy. Will we hear from the lawyer? Will we hear hear from uh, Greenspan again? Uh, Well, uh, Brian Greenspan will probably make lots of comments on, on other cases. This one, I don't think so. Uh, I reached out to him. Uh, I reached out to him a month ago, uh, and I had already heard that this this was going to happen, and he completely denied it to me. In fact, threatened me and said to publish the story at your own peril. And so I hope I <laughs> wow. had to, to try wow. and get some more information. And then today, I reached out to him uh, again, and uh, he he issued a statement saying that something to the effect of uh, I'm still involved in an advisory capacity, which I guess is the case. Uh, do you expect to hear from other members of the family? Did we not hear initially from a member of the family when this story first broke? No, I mean, we heard uh, a statement which was uh, only described to us as from the family. I mean, I, I do uh, talk from time to time to some uh members of the extended Sherman family, and certainly uh, quite often to a lot of uh, close friends of, of Barry and Honey. And uh, I, I think that the family uh, is a very private family, and no, I don't think we're going to see 
uh, I think if we were going to see it, we would have seen them at that press conference today, as we do in many other uh, terrible cases. Uh, obviously, you can't answer this question, uh, Kevin, but will the public be surprised at the outcome of all of this and the trial when we do eventually learn the truth, do you think? Well, um, is this I, or is this going to be one of those, oh my goodness, I can't believe that? I don't think it'll be that one. I, I think people will... Um, I, I think people will 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 under, understand it when it finally rolls out. But yeah. uh, I could be completely wrong. Uh, but you know, there's uh, uh, there, there's still uh, I think months to go in this case. Months, you said? I, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, look, we're we're getting close to the to the holiday season. Uh, I don't think there's going to be anything now, and I, I I would imagine that after they've made gone to the trouble of asking for. Um, people to come forward, they're going to have to let that happen. Mm-hmm. So let's say let's say a month passes and then whoever wants to come forward has come forward with, you know, perhaps resubmitting tips as, as was requested today. And then they'll take a little bit of time uh, to look at those tips. So I so I think months, I don't think years. Uh, how often do people ask you about this story just on your day to day stuff? I mean, why is this gripping? Why is this getting our attention the way it is? Uh, constantly asked and happy to to answer and be as, as transparent as I can about our work at the Toronto Star uh, and, and the work I, work I did for the book. I think people are interested in this because it is uh, a whodunit and uh, and it is, happens to be a whodunit that involves uh, people that were quite well known and 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 and, and very important to to the fabric of, of the community in Toronto and, and in Canada. Uh, we haven't talked about that, but Barry and Honey Sherman, I, I, I never met them, obviously, but, uh, but I came to know them through their best friends, and, and they, they, they were certainly eccentric, but very uh, good people, I think. And so, uh, and of course, a lot of good people are victims of, of tragedy, but if you, the fact that it is not being solved, and then there's all these speculation and theories uh, surrounding it, that's what makes it a story that people are interested in. People... Human beings are interested in in stories, and this one has captured uh, the attention of a lot of people. How has this affected the business? Obviously, uh, an extremely large drug company here. Is it in limbo while all of this is 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 being investigated? Well, I, I think that the uh, what they've done is they have begun selling off some of the parts of of, of the uh, the non core business. And there was a story in, I think, Bloomberg uh, about eight months ago saying that it was for sale. I wasn't able to get a confirmation of that. Uh, and so I, I do think that it is for sale, but uh, there's been no um, movement on that right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, uh, it's a big company. Uh, I think there's about 10,000 employees of both uh, in Canada and outside of Canada. And, uh, you know, a lot of people... Uh, use generic drugs and, and health plans love it. So uh, I would imagine that that another generic company is probably uh, looking to uh, to increase their own holdings. That would seem to make sense to me, but I've seen no announcement yet. All right, Toronto Police uh, press conference this morning saying that the private investigation into the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman, that portion over, they are the sole investigators at this point and are looking for 
uh, more key witnesses, as it appears uh, this is working towards an, uh, a conclusion. Kevin Donovan has been with us, chief investigative reporter with the Toronto Star. The book is The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, Ke- uh, Doug, or sorry, Kevin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Good luck with this. Fascinating. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Talk to you again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, all right, something we uh, were addressing last week, and I just didn't get a chance to uh, to complete. Ontario has passed a bill to join British Columbia uh, in a class action lawsuit against opioid manufacturers. We have talked about opioid, uh, the opioid situation in this country for years now on this show. In regard to uh, who is responsible, how do we get a handle on this, and and how do we pay for all of this at the end of the day? And finally, uh, it looks as uh, these cases are finally moving their ways, uh, their way through the courts and the large drug companies that have been responsible for uh, a lot of this, uh, the situation that we're in now are being sued in cities, municipalities, what have you. Provinces are trying to recoup some of the money that has been spent on this uh, horrendous issue, which has uh, crippled so many Canadians. To talk more about all of this, Doug Downey is with us, Attorney General for Ontario, and is on the line now. Doug, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, glad, glad to have, have a chat, Scott. Now, Doug, I, you know, I, I'm t- totally going to T-bone you, but I have to because it's my job. And just wondering if you know what's going on this afternoon in Hamilton with Carolyn Mulrooney and our LRT and, and what this announcement's going to be. If you're not going to speculate, I'm not going to speculate. How's that? <laughs> All right, I'll leave it at that. Uh, tell us about uh, this uh, this lawsuit. Uh, BC at the heart of this, as they've been at the heart of this uh, this problem. Uh, it, it's been very difficult on them. Tell us about it and how this is gaining momentum. Yeah, BC is taking the lead on it, and we're we're joining their class action. Several provinces are. There are now five of us joined together to to go after the the manufacturers and, and distributors. Uh, we're going after about 40 of them, and we have to recover some of these costs. Uh, the, this epidemic that, that has come across Canada based on assertions uh, that were harmful, uh, we, you know, it's affecting everything. It's affecting our hospitals. It's affecting our, our corrections facilities. It, it's right across the board. How much do you hope to recover? How, how is this all going to work? Is this a massive lawsuit and then all the provinces will share in, in whatever comes, for, comes out of this? The idea is that, that we, can, we can have that discussion, whether, whether it gets resolved as, as a legal decision or whether it gets resolved through, through some sort of settlement remains to be seen. But we needed to be part of that class action to be part of the discussions. And it's, it's big numbers. I mean, we saw what happened in Oklahoma. Uh, with a decision there at Johnson and Johnson, it was hundreds of millions of dollars, and so yeah, we we expect to to receive some funds, and and the money we receive, we've committed, will go back into dealing with this epidemic. Uh, we're certainly hearing of more and more jurisdictions that are doing this all the time. Do these things ever get to court, or are these drug companies realizing that they that what's best for them is just to settle out of court? What, what we're seeing with uh, with Purdue and, and with the Sackler family is that they're they're appearing to try to negotiate uh, all of their claims worldwide uh, at the same time. That's part of the discussion that we're joining. Um, it, it, I was reading a, a report the other day that said uh, naloxone, which is the antidote for people that are are. Uh, 
you know, have, have succumbed to an overdose, an overdose yeah. of some way is actually produced by the same company or companies that are responsible for creating the drug in the first place. Is that accurate? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, what I do know is that it's it's an area that is fraught with with challenges. Um, and when when you understand how naloxone interacts with with those drugs, um, it's it's not a perfect solution. It's certainly it's it's a tool, um, but it becomes a breeding issue. And naloxone wears off faster than the opioid does. So there there are challenges in that. It's not a, it's really not a full solution, regardless. Any idea how long this process is actually going to take? I mean, could this get tied up in courts forever? I think we're, people are coming to the table to have a discussion. That certainly speeds up the time frame. But like any kind of litigation, it's, it's always difficult to predict what, what one of the parties will do and how fast we can move. Other provinces jumping on board this as well. Will this involve uh, all provinces by the time it's finished? I don't know the answer to that. I know that we're all talking to each other, and and we've made the decision to, to join the group. Uh, like I say, BC took the lead, and, and others have, have decided that as well. It seems to be the most efficient way to move forward. Uh, you can imagine that when you bring in all the American states and municipalities and, and everybody's claims, they'd have to deal with you know thousands of entities at the same time. If they can have one discussion with our Canadian provinces, that would be productive. Have you heard anything from the drug manufacturers on this and what you're doing? I'm I'm not engaging directly in, in at that level. I'm helping with the with the litigation part of it. What have we learned from this process? Because uh, you know, here it seems that we had a drug that was ma- uh, that was manufactured and uh, and, and produced and prescribed. Well, I guess prescribed by doctors, but was supposed to be a clean drug. Was supposed to be non addictive. Was supposed to be everything that it turned out to be. Uh, then through aggressive marketing, it made our way. It made its way into the medical system, and then now we are where we are, trying to recover from this. And we've certainly seen in British Columbia. My goodness, has been hit really hard with this, um, as all provinces have. But they cer- they certainly seem to be ground zero for all of this. What have we learned from any of this, from this whole process? Because when this well, all I, started, it was supposed to help. I, I think it it speaks to the role of government in making sure that that products that hit the market are appropriate and that there's, there's accountability in the system. Uh, this lawsuit is partly about accountability, uh, making sure that people who put products out and make claims, that the claims are true. Uh, is this, uh, do you think this is the scenario where it will get worse before it gets better? Uh, is there, right now, obviously, going after money to help get a handle on this, what do we do until that money arrives? The, the real the real issue is, is what what are we doing and we we have the first associate minister of mental health and addictions minister Tobolo and and I can tell you anybody that engages with him in terms of trying to find a solution understands his his unbelievable depth of knowledge of this area uh, so we're doing we're doing several things we're not waiting for the resolution of the lawsuit to go after this this issue it's it's a much bigger issue than we'll ever see enough money to, to fix from this lawsuit and it's devastating families. It's devastating, uh, having a huge impact on communities. In my, in my riding, which includes Barrie, it's it has the third highest hospital visit, uh, emergency visit in Canada. It's the impact on the community is quite significant. What do you say to the families that are suffering from this issue? Uh, 
we we've been engaging with with those families and, and understanding the pathways to addiction and trying to put some supports in in place. Uh, I think you'll you'll be pleased when when Minister Tabolo unrolls our, our our plan. It's they want a solution. I, by and large, the families that I talk to don't want it to happen to another family because it's just so so heart wrenching. Uh, is there anything that has to be done from the federal standpoint uh, when it comes to approving these drugs? Because, again, it seemed like this was supposed to help, uh, and and government is, is here to protect us from that. Um, again, it just seems that, that this was just a mass campaign of misinformation. I, I don't really want to comment on... on what the federal government should or shouldn't have done. Uh, I did. I did work for a summer in the health and welfare, uh, health protection branch. Um, so I have some rudimentary knowledge of, of process, but it's quite dated, and and I don't really want to, uh, to tell them their business. But I'm happy to engage and and make sure the system works better for everybody. Uh, when will this move forward? What is next for this uh, process? So the the bill passed uh, on Thursday um, of last week. So it's now the piece that we needed to be able to join the lawsuit has passed. So our next step is to formally do that and then engage in those conversations that hopefully will lead to an appropriate settlement. Doug Downey has been with his Attorney General for Ontario. Last week, Ontario passes a bill that would allow the province to join B.C. and other provinces in a class action lawsuit against opioid manufacturers, hoping to recover some of the costs that this has uh, put on various regions. Doug, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.